And so uh, we have chosen the book of Revelation, which it's always the most requested book and the most avoided one. And so I thought I would stop the latter part of that. So Revelation, and we're going to read verses, uh, we're going to read in chapter 1, verses 4 to 11 this morning. So hear the word of the Lord from the book of Revelation. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will mourn on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Well, that's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly fathers, we come to your word, but we know that we need your help to understand. We need your help to listen. We need your help to apply and we need your help to be transformed. So Lord, provide all that we need in this moment and show your word to be powerful, renew our minds, transform our hearts and shape our wills according to your gospel. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. We're going to start with a multiple choice quiz. Which of these metaphors best describes the impact that the troubles and trials of this life have on you or you've seen on others? First metaphor, the troubles and trials of this life are like thick gray clouds that roll in and block the sun from view. Think of clouds blocking the warmth and light of the sun. So trials seem to come in and block the warmth of God's shining face from view, the warmth of his providence. Number two, the troubles and trials of this life are like a burden laid on my back that feels so heavy to bear, it's as if it's going to crush me underneath the weight of it. Or number three, the troubles and trials of this life feel like I'm a castaway on an island all alone with no hope of rescue. Trials make me feel isolated, forsaken, abandoned, cast off. Number four, the troubles and trials of this life seem as if I am facing an enemy that I cannot defeat and an obstacle that I cannot overcome. Well, perhaps you hear those four metaphors of describing the trials and troubles of this life, and you think there should be a fifth option. Number E, all of the above, and often sometimes all at the same time. Troubles and trials cast a bleakness over life that blocks the warmth and joy of fellowship with God. They burden us with a crushing heaviness. They make us feel isolated and alone. And at times they seem insurmountable and an obstacle that we cannot overcome. And what we need in those moments when we're feeling the palpability of the metaphors of trials is a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances. We need an eternal view on our temporary troubles. We need someone to help us see 
that the cloud of, of our circumstances may be blocking the sun from our view, but the light of God's face has not stopped shining upon his people. The burden may seem heavy, but there is one who cares for us, that we can cast all our cares upon because he loves us, and there is no burden too heavy for him to bear. We may feel isolated and alone and forsaken, but the Lord will never leave us or forsake us. And he surrounds us with people who are with us in the midst of it. And the enemies, an enemy may seem unbeatable, but Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he has given a name that is above every name. And so we share in that rule with him and in that victory, even if it may not feel like it in the moment. And the reason I bring this up is because this is precisely why God inspired John to write the letter of Revelation. John, as you heard in our reading, is enduring his own trials. He's exiled, he's cast off. And in the midst of that comes the letter of Revelation to the churches who are also enduring their own trials. On one side, it's persecution, religious. On one side, it's persecution, political. On another side, it's the seduction of a fallen world that is causing them to think about compromising their faith. And then there's corruption from the inside. And so what John says in this opening greeting is the grace and peace you need to endure the trials of this present evil age come from your sovereign triune God who has not left you or forsaken you. Revelation is a letter to a church who is enduring hard earthly circumstances, but it gives them a heavenly perspective. They are dealing with temporary troubles, but it gives them an eternal view to see better. And it starts out with exactly what we need to hear when we are overwhelmed by our circumstances. A greeting from the God who is sovereign and rules and overrules all things for his glory. So we're going to look together at the opening of this letter. And first notice that the grace and peace we need to endure comes to the church by way of a letter. So Revelation is a difficult book. I'll admit that from the beginning. I think it's an understandable book. I think it is a rich and rewarding book, but there is strange symbolism. There's prophetic pronouncements. There is apocalyptic descriptions. There's animals with wings and faces and eyes. And yet, do not miss the fact that Revelation is a letter. It is a real letter. Look at verse one or verse four of chapter one. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And then jump down to verse nine through 11 and notice I, John, your brother, and he describes his situation. And then he says in verse 11, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. This is a real author writing to real people and addressing them in real stuff. So as we read Revelation, one of the things you need to keep in mind is that God inspired this to be written by a real person who is enduring his own real trials, to be written and sent and circulated among real churches who are going through really difficult circumstances. And so in writing Revelation, John is not trying his hand at writing the best science fiction novel in history, nor is he trying to play a fun game of who can crack the code. As if he's sending it to seven churches, you know, this is kind of his version of a game show because he's bored on Patmos with nothing to do. This is a letter that communicates grace and peace, which flows to us from a sovereign triune God who knows what we're going through. And I don't know about you, but 
I love letters. There's a personal nature to them that just a meme or a gif or a text message just doesn't communicate. And now I, I don't keep or hold on to many things. In fact, my spiritual gift is throwing things away. So if, if you hoard things and clutter, I'll come over to your house and I'll throw things away for you. But when someone writes a letter, I cherish it. I hold on to it. I have a box in my office just for handwritten letters so that I can, I can, I have to organize them if I'm going to keep them, but I keep them because the thoughtful, personal nature of a letter communicates something that few other things do not convey. And especially in times of discouragement, in times of despondency, a personal letter is like soothing ointment to the soul. So there are times when I'm discouraged and I'll just pick up those letters and read them. Or when my ego is feeling a little low, I'll just pick up those letters and I'll read them. Well, in a similar way, imagine these churches, in their circumstances, getting a letter inspired by the Lord through the Apostle John. This is like a ray of light for them, breaking through the the thick cloud of their circumstances and giving hope and joy and peace to them in the midst of what they're going through. So here's a summary of how this letter would have been produced and then distributed to its original audience. So you have John on the island of Patmos. And when you hear island of Patmos, do not think Bahamas, think Alcatraz, okay? Or kids, think Azkaban, all right, if that helps you. He is not visiting a vacation site off of the coast of Asia Minor. He is in exile because the Roman government has determined that he is a threat to the good order of society. He is better cast off and isolated there than he is here causing ruckus and trouble. And so while he's there, God supernaturally reveals to him what he is to write to the church. And as John writes, God works through John's situation and his circumstances, his personality, his grammatical style, such that when Revelation is written, we can say without contradiction, John wrote Revelation and God wrote Revelation. That's what the doctrine, the inspiration means. So John finishes writing Revelation and he probably rolls it up like a scroll and he hands it off to a trustworthy fellow believer who's probably come to visit him to give him supplies, resources, companionship, something like that. And he says to that faithful, trusted believer, this is a letter the Lord wants me to give to these churches. So when you go back, give it to these churches. And so they carry that letter, at least Patmos, heads to the port city of Ephesus. And you can see I have a map there in your bulletin on page seven. And he starts with Ephesus and he goes to Ephesus and he says to the leaders in that church, gather the believers here. Because John has a letter for you. So the the believers come together, they gather, and that trustworthy believer reads that letter from beginning to end in the gathering of the congregation. And then before he leaves, some members of the church get together, and they copy and write down on their own scroll what John had written so they can hold on to it, and they can reflect on it later and meditate on it later. And then he heads to the next church, to Smyrna. He does the same thing there, and the church in Smyrna listens And they copy and they reflect on it later. And he goes around this whole circuit, reading this letter, distributing it to the church. That's how letters got circulated in the early church. This is how the the book of Revelation would have been first encountered and interacted with when it was first written. Now, how does knowing that Revelation is a letter written to real churches help us? Well, it helps us that when we are going through our own circumstances, it helps us gain some much-needed perspective on what we're dealing with. Because there are times when we're facing unpleasant, difficult, unfavorable circumstances, and for some, we can tend to exaggerate 
how bad they are or how unique they are. For example, we can look at the political, economic situation. We can think never ever in the history of the world have things ever been this bad. No one can define who a man or woman is, and my groceries are $10 more expensive than they were last year. How can we survive? And yet think of the audience that John is writing to. Their concern was not, you know, with these rising prices, will my family be able to stay in Thyatira? Will we be able to to afford the property taxes that Rome is raising on us? No, their thought is, is the Roman proconsul of Thyatira going to come to my house seize all my goods and imprison me because I didn't show up to the pagan temple for the ritual feast today to honor the emperor of Rome. They were dealing with real threats, severe threats. And my point in bringing all this up is to help you see that we have brothers and sisters in Christ throughout history and throughout the world who have gone through extreme difficult circumstances and yet God has sustained them in the midst of them. He's been faithful to them in the midst of them as hard as they were. And his promise has always prevailed. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. My my mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And so in one says, for some of us, we need to hear, cheer up, it could be worse. And for others, we need to hear, the Lord is with you as he was with them. It's difficult. It is a trial, but he has been with others in history who have gone through that thing, and he has sustained them. So take courage. God's grace and peace will surely sustain us as it has sustained them. Well, now a question that comes up when we look at this as a letter and who John addresses it to. Did he intend for this letter to be only for these seven specific churches, or does he have in mind the broader church? And I think the answer is yes. The answer is a definite yes. John intended this letter for seven real churches. Every church that he's writing to is a real church with real people going through real stuff. And he addresses them personally. He deals with what they're really going through. And yet, I believe he intended what he wrote to be for all churches because these seven churches are real on the one hand and representative of the church broadly on another hand. Because the struggles they face are, yes, personal to them, but they're also struggles that the church throughout history is going to face. They're struggles that the church between Christ's first coming and his second coming are going to deal with at times and to different degrees. And so in writing to these churches, he expects us to overhear it, as it were, and to be encouraged by it and to learn from it. And let me try and prove what I mean from the scriptures. Look at the first letter to one of the specific churches. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. So there's the opening of this address to this specific church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. So he's writing to them specifically, these believers in this church. But then jump down to verse 7. As John concludes this letter from the Lord Jesus, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You notice how it starts personal, Ephesus, and then it moves to general broad. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches broadly. And I think John does that very intentionally so that even as we're reading this, we would know that what he writes to them is as important to us as it was to them. So the seven churches are real and they're representative and we should listen to what is said. Well, as we continue in our passage, we see that the grace and peace we need to endure comes by way of a greeting from our sovereign triune God. 
So listen to the greeting that John gives, and it starts in the second half of verse four and goes into verse five. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. So in this greeting, John draws our attention to the supplies we need to endure and the source from which it comes from. The supplies we need and the source it comes from. The first supply we need is grace. Grace to you is what John starts his letter with and it is what he ends his letter with. So look at the very last verse of Revelation. Flip to Revelation 22, verse 21. So opening greeting to the church, grace to you. And as he closes this letter, the last word he speaks is the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So to highlight the essential nature of grace, it's the first word he speaks and the last word he speaks. He bookends the whole letter by greeting us with grace and leaving us with the benediction of grace. Why does he do that? Because to rightly understand everything between those bookends, you need God's grace. To rightly and faithfully keep and obey everything in between those bookends, guess what you need? You need God's grace. To endure and persevere all the realities that John describes between those two bookends, you need God's grace. We just sang these words. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. What John Newton was writing there is he was telling us that there is not a single moment of your Christian life in which you are without the need of God's grace. There's not one single moment that you cannot say, I am absolutely dependent on the grace of God to sustain me and uphold me. Nor is there a single moment of your Christian life in which God lacks a sufficient supply and strength of grace to give you exactly what you need. So think of the Apostle Paul. He had to learn this lesson. A thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was, but we know he had one. And he pleads, Lord, remove it, remove it, remove it. And each time the answer comes back, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. There are times when we wish that God's grace would look like removing something, taking it away, kind of that magic eraser. And yet, oftentimes God's grace is in the form of not removing us from something or removing something from us, but sustaining us in it, in the midst of it, working on us and showing us that his grace is sufficient for us because his power is made perfect in weakness. Well, the second supply you, you need is peace. Grace to you and peace. So our circumstances... And our feelings about our circumstances are telling us the opposite all the time. You should be worrying right now. You should be anxious about what's coming next. You should be troubled because today is bad. And guess what? Tomorrow is probably going to be worse. Now, I'm a natural pessimist, so that really speaks to me. Kind of an Eeyore character. But Jesus is one who speaks peace. He's on the boat with his disciples. And he's sleeping very, very peaceful thing to do. And there's waves roaring and crashing and spilling. And there's trained fishermen who are afraid of this sea that they've been on many, many times. And they wake Jesus up and he says, why are you afraid? Peace, be still. And that same Savior who speaks to troubled waves speaks through this letter to troubled souls as well. Peace. 
Spiritual peace is different than the peace that the world gives. Jesus does not give peace as the world gives. The world's peace is superficial, it's fragile, it's shallow because it is based on ever-changing circumstances that we must try and control. And you find out over and over and over again that circumstances change and I cannot control them. Spiritual's peace is solid and stable and durable because it is based on unchanging realities that are fixed by our sovereign God. It's based on the past reality that Jesus lived and died and rose again and ascended into heaven. It's based on the present reality that Christ is reigning right now at the Father's right hand, that the Father loves us and does not count our sins against us. And it's based on the future reality that Christ is returning soon, that he is making all things new, that he will fulfill all his promises for their yes and amen in Christ. So when you hear about grace and peace, you examine your own life, do you think in terms of grace, I, I actually feel dependent on grace on a regular basis and I put myself beneath the, the waterfall of grace or is it more, you know, I, I think that life is really dependent on me and, and I'm kind of do-it-myself, spiritually self-sufficient type of person. When you think about peace, is your inner sense of peace tossed to and fro by every change in the circumstances of life or is it firmly rooted on spiritually unchanging realities that are fixed by Christ? Well, there's a proper place for examining if we are truly living the Christian life in dependence on God, if we're truly at peace, not having a worldly peace, but a spiritual peace, but you will not grow in your experience of grace and peace, in the supply of grace and peace that come to you by thinking about grace and peace. It's good to define them, but that's not how you're gonna know them experientially. To know them experientially, you have to look with the eyes of faith at the source of grace and peace, which is where John draws our attention to. Where is the source of these supplies that we desperately need? Well, notice three times in his greeting, John uses the preposition of source, from, from, from. Three times he addresses this letter to you guys, but he wants us to know who it's from. It's from the Father, it's from the Holy Spirit, and it's from the Son. And so John greets these believers who are struggling, not with a generic, off-brand knockoff grace and peace, right? This is not Aldi grace and peace. This is Publix grace. This is the real stuff. I shop at Aldi, so I can say that. I do like it. This is high-quality, one-of-a-kind, real, genuine grace and peace. Because the only type of grace and peace that you can know is grace and peace that comes from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because there is no other kind of grace and peace. Everything else is a mirage. Grace and peace only flows to us from God. So perhaps if your life feels graceless and peaceless, it's because you have been either trying the generic knockoff off-brand stuff, or because you know you need to come to the Lord because only he offers it, and yet you won't humble yourself in repentance and faith to come to him. So we need to know the Lord to know this grace and peace. So the first source of grace and peace that John directs our attention to is God the Father. And describes the Father in verse 4 and verse 8. Look there with me. Grace to you and peace from him who was, or from him who is, and who was, and who is to come. And then jump down to verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So when John describes the Father to us, he gives us a grammar lesson in the tenses of verbs, past, present, and future. Because he wants us to know that God 
is the sovereign Lord over every single stage and moment of history. So when you're going through circumstances and you're in the midst of dealing with stuff, it's easy to look around and think, who's in charge or where is the Lord? And wonder if what you're feeling today is gonna continue tomorrow. Or maybe if you have past regrets from things you did before, you're gonna wonder, can can God change that? Or is that gonna continue to bother me and rack me with guilt the rest of my life? And so John says, God is the one who is and who was and who is to come, the sovereign one of all of history. He is the alpha and the omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the alphabet. He is the creator and consummator, the one who began all things, will bring all things to their end and who sustains and overrules and rules all things in between. So think about how we often think about our past, present, and future. We can often think about it to our spiritual detriment and discouragement. We look back and we feel regret and shame of things we did that we can't change. We look around at our present circumstances and we feel frustration with things that we can't control. And we look forward and we feel fear about things continuing in the present that we can't control even in the future. But when we look at time from a God-centered, alpha and omega perspective, it changes everything. The past becomes about God's faithfulness and forgiveness, that he poured out his mercies upon us. He does not deal with us as our sins deserve. The present is about God's steadfast love. He is with me. He is upholding me. He's at work in me, and he'll never leave me or forsake me. And the future is about God's wisdom and sovereignty. I don't need to worry about the future because I know it's in good hands. I know that God will work all things according to the counsel of his wisdom. And notice how John rearranges the order of the tenses. It's not past, present, future. It's not who was, who is, and who is to come. And I intentionally read it wrong. It's present, past, future. He starts with who is. Why does John do that? Well, think about who he's writing. He's writing to a church who in the present is dealing with difficult things And they're wondering, where is God now and who is in charge now? And have we been forgotten? Have we been abandoned? And John says, God is. God is right now in charge. And you're not at the mercy of Rome. You're not at the mercy of your circumstances. God is there and he is not silent. God is present and he rules even now. As hard as it is for us in the midst of those circumstances, we often feel like God is not. And yet John is saying, God is. He is, and he was, and he is to come. Well, next, John directs our attention to the Holy Spirit at the end of verse four. Look there with me. He says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, I touched on this a little bit last week. John is not calling us to revise our doctrine of the Trinity. We should not say we believe in one God in nine persons. That's not what John's saying. John is symbolically referring to the spirit using the number seven. You're going to see numbers showing up all over the place in Revelation. The number seven is that number in the Bible because of the creation account. God created in six days, rests on the seventh. The day number seven represents completion and fullness and perfection. And so John is referring to the Holy Spirit, showing us that he is complete, he is full, he is perfect. And I also think there's an intentional connection between the seven churches that John is writing to on the one hand, and the fact that he refers to the spirit in the sevenfold perfection and fullness. So Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, tells us that there's a strong connection between the local church and the presence of the spirit. He says to the church in Corinth, do you not know 
that you are the temple of God and the spirit dwells among you. Speaking of the church, that the church is the new temple in which the spirit of God dwells. And so there's this unique correlation between the church and the Holy Spirit. So perhaps as these churches are going through their difficult circumstances, John wants them to understand the connection that they have with the spirit. And so perhaps this is what John is trying to communicate to them with this 7-7 connection. Each body of believers he's writing to had an equal share in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's such a fullness of perfection in the Holy Spirit that he can dwell in the fullness of the church wherever they are. No church is neglected by or lacking the ministry of the Holy Spirit. His presence in heaven before the throne does not hinder his work on earth. And his work in one local church does not hinder him from working in another local church. So perhaps that's what John is trying to communicate. And maybe that's that's not the point John intended, but at least I can say it's a glorious truth that you can find somewhere else in the Bible. Well, finally, John sends the bulk of his words, he spends the bulk of his words showing us that God the Son is also the source of our grace and peace that we so desperately need. So look at verse five with me. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Faithful witness. The Greek word we get for witness is the English word for martyr. So a martyr was one who would give their life for the cause of Christ. They were one who was faithful even to death. And Jesus is described as the faithful witness. So think about the believers who are receiving this letter. For them, death was not just a medical issue, a medical circumstance. It was religious, it was political, it was social. They were facing the threat of it and it was very real for them. And so for them facing this reality, we have other brothers and sisters in Christ who face this on a regular basis around the world. They can look to Christ and say, this is the ultimate faithful witness par excellence. The one who is faithful unto death, who did not consider his life a value, but laid it down for us. And he was obedient to to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then he goes on. He says, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and ruler of kings on earth. Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. And what John is doing here is he is taking words from Psalm 89. So keep your eyes on those words in verse five and listen to Psalm 89, 27. In Psalm 89, the psalmist is celebrating the covenant promise that God made to David. He said to David, you will never lack a son to sit on your throne. Your kingdom will endure to all generations. And Psalm 89 is celebrating that and anticipating what that's going to look like in the future. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 89, 27, and I will make David's son the firstborn, the highest of the kings on the earth. So do you see the connection there between Revelation 1, 5 and Psalm 89, 27? John is taking words from Psalm 89 about David's son and saying saying of Jesus, this is great David's greater son. This is the one who sits on the one throne that matters, the throne that is above every throne, and he rules over the kings on earth. So as the firstborn, this is not referring to Jesus' birth order, as if he has firstborn tendencies. This is referring to his status of supremacy over all things. So he's the firstborn over the dead because he was raised. And as the first one raised, we also are going to be raised like him. And so the greatest threat a believer can face is death. And the greatest power on earth that a believer can face, which is persecution, 
from religious and political authority is underneath the supremacy of Jesus and he has defeated death and he rules over all the kings on the earth. That is how John is greeting them. You think about Jesus. He stood before Pontius Pilate. So here's Jesus looking like he is in the worst form of human weakness, battered, beaten up, bruised, wearing a crown of thorns, dripping blood. And he stands before Pontius Pilate in that area, the most powerful person. And Pontius Pilate says, do you not know that I have the power to let you go? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You would have no power had it not been given to you, given to you from above. In fact, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down to my own accord and I will take it up again. In a similar way, Jesus says to all of us, you are my sheep and no one can snatch you out of my hand. No circumstance can rule and overrule you and, con- and control the trajectory of your life because it is me in whose hands you rest that is the ultimate author, sustainer, and upholder of your life. And so regardless of what people do to you, regardless of what circumstances you're going through, what threats you're facing, you are invincibly resting in my sovereign hands and no one can snatch you out of them. And so out of these descriptions, John breaks out into a doxology. He breaks out into praise. John can't help his theology from spilling over into a song. That's what, A doxology is simply a praise to the Lord. And so he's thinking about Jesus. And in that moment, it causes him to burst forth in praise to Jesus. And again, he moves us from the present to the past to the future. In the present, he says, in the middle of verse 5, to him who loves us. This is the most precious present tense verb you will find in all the Bible. To him who not loved us, but loves us presently. There can be a sense in which we can, we can look back at the cross and think, I know Jesus loved me. I know he laid down his life for me. But does he still love me in the present? Is he still with me in the present? And from this verb, you can be assured that the love of Christ does not age. It does not wear out. It does not turn stale. It is not fickle. It does not fluctuate with circumstances. It is like an ever-rolling stream that continues on and on and on. The same love that Christ demonstrated at the cross, he has for his bride, the church, even right now upon the throne. He is the ever-living one and the ever-loving one. And then John looks to the past and he praises Christ who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to our God and his father. Think about this. John is in exile on Patmos as a political prisoner writing to those whose freedoms are being stripped away from them slowly or the threat of them is hanging over them. And he says to them, Christ loves you and you're free in Christ. You are free indeed because you have been freed from your sins by the blood of Christ. And you may feel beleaguered. You may feel like a cast up, but guess what? You're a kingdom and priest. You have a position and a citizenship in the kingdom that will outlast all kingdoms and you have access to the throne that matters and to the one who hears you. In Christ, we are free of all guilt and condemnation and shame. We are free of all the eternal consequences of sin because Christ bore it all. He covered it all. He canceled it all. That is freedom that John realizes no earthly exile island can touch and no political authority 
can take away. Do you know that freedom? Do you know true freedom? I think it's interesting. We live in Florida. Maybe maybe you're visiting here. And in Florida, we often talk about, and this is generally from a conservative political perspective, that Florida is the greatest place to live in the world. You know, we have the most freedoms. This is the best place. I'm not trying to make a political point here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture an illustration. Whenever I travel, I go to the Midwest and visit up there. And when people find out I'm from Florida, they're like, oh, what's it like living there? It's so like going from West Germany to East Germany. What's it like? <laughs> now, I agree. There's something wonderful about knowing political freedom. I think that's why we live in this country and, and love it. And that's probably why you're not looking for real estate in North Korea right now, I'm guessing. But consider this. You could live in Florida. You could know all the political freedom, all the financial freedom, all the social freedom, all the free time to access all these wonderful things. And if you don't know Christ, you are not free. And you could live in North Korea under all that and know Christ, and you would be more free than an unbeliever living in Florida, regardless of the political situation. That is true freedom. And yet we so often get enamored by all the freedoms of the world. And they are good, and we should be grateful for them and defend them and celebrate them. Don't hear me saying that. But they do not hold a candle to the sun, which is knowing the freedom that comes from having your sins forgiven in Christ. If you would know true freedom, you must know Christ. And then John turns to the future and he takes words from Daniel 7, prophecy from there, and from Zechariah 12, and he reminds us that Christ is coming again and we will know the fullness of real freedom then. Look at verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. So John directs, our eyes to the future because he wants us to know that if you believe our enduring trials, going through difficult circumstances, the return of Christ means that all your hardships have an expiration date on them. Every single trial and trouble that you endure in this life, in light of the finished work of Christ and the promised return of Christ, has an expiration date. It is temporary. Behold, these slight momentary afflictions are working for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It gives you hope knowing that Christ is going to return because your troubles will not get the last word in your life. Your difficult circumstances will not get the last word. But the return of Christ is a double-edged sword. For those who are resisting Christ and rebelling against Christ, the promise of his coming means that the time for you to repent and place your faith in him has an expiration date as well. For the believer, it is a sweet comfort knowing that all of our troubles have an expiration date. But for the one who's rebelling against Christ, it is a solemn warning that the patience of God has a fixed date on its calendar. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He is not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That is a true statement. I don't care what theological stream you come from. Yet he is just and he will by no means clear the guilty. And so today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to know that Christ is coming again and I want to live in light of that. I want to know right now that I can be free and know true freedom. Today is the day to know that grace and peace, the grace and peace we need 
to endure the present evil age that we live in flows to us in abundance from one source and one source only, our sovereign triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, would you turn with me in your bulletins before we go to the prayer, to page eight. So we introduce kind of a ending sermon liturgy for the book of Revelation because John ends this letter with a liturgy. So if you see at the bottom of page eight, this responsive conclusion, I'm going to read the words in italics. Would you respond corporately with the words in bold? He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Our loving Lord, please help us to acknowledge and be sobered by the fact that you are coming again. Let us live every day in hopeful anticipation of that. Lord, let us not be so enamored by the fool's gold of this world that we do not see eternity for what it is the home that we have truly been longing for, the real realities of joy and peace and hope. And Lord, help us to know the freedom and peace that comes from having our sins forgiven, from being made a kingdom and priest to our God and knowing that all promises are yes and amen in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In light of this word we've just heard, we're gonna turn to page nine and 10 of our bulletin and we're gonna sing together, Christ is mine forevermore. Would you please stand and sing with me?